back. All right, we're going to read Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Philippians 1.15, please follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. May God bless His Word to us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for our crucified and risen Savior, thank you for the great love that was demonstrated to us on Calvary. We thank you for the precious, precious gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Father, thank you that you saved us. And I pray that you'd help us to herald the gospel far and wide, to tell people, to love people enough, to share with them what Jesus Christ did, to engage them in conversations and, and wrestle with truth, Father, that there's so much blindness out there, and the God of this world truly hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. And I pray that we would uh, preach the gospel so that the glorious light of the gospel can shine in unto people's souls. And we ask your blessing now and on every aspect of the service. Thank you for Bible Baptist Church in Upper Darby. Uh, Father, we do want to lift up Skip and pray for him that uh, we're so thankful for this donor, uh, that whoever this person is. And we thank you, Lord, that Skip's number came up and that um, uh, he is going to get this transplant. We just pray that everything will go well, that the transition, the actual transplant, the surgery for both Skip and the donor would go well, that there would be great healing for both, and uh, that especially that Skip's body would receive and not reject this, this kidney and uh, that would, would just serve him for many, many years. And we look forward to that. We just pray for your blessing now. Bless those that are struggling. Bless the shut-ins and uh, the people that uh, are maybe watching us online. Lord, bless those with health issues. And we just thank you that we can worship you together. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. At least three weeks, I guess. Uh, let's open our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. You might say, no, I'm studying Philippians for my devotions. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, we are going through this verse by verse, and uh, last time, our last message, I did not get to finish, so we are going to continue with the text where we were at, and uh, just go back and, and pursue. The title of the message three weeks ago was certain, The Certainty for the Future, and uh, we're going to do, I guess, a part two of that today. But Paul mentions in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1, he talks about expectations. In fact, my favorite verse, is it okay to say that? All verses are created equal. All verses are given under inspiration of the Spirit of God. But some verses mean more to us. 
Like, for example, Boaz begat someone may not be as important to you as be anxious or be careful for nothing. Uh, well, Philippians 1.20 is my life verse. And uh, so I have it memorized and, uh, and I quote it often. And, and the Lord led me to this many, many years ago uh, because it was, there were some things that, that it spoke to me about. I wanted it to uh, kind of my goal in life where Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with, <laughs> but that with all confidence as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And uh, only when I began to study it more in depth for this text did I get the full context of what Paul was talking about. And it has been a blessing. Uh, And so I'm sharing these things with you. So what we're going to be talking about really today is expectations. According to my earnest expectation and my hope. Now next Sunday, I hope you can come out for our um, Soup and Chili Fellowship. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I hope we have a really good turnout. Usually when Baptists or usually when any Bible-believing church has food, uh, people will follow. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. And we already have four, four questions submitted for our panel discussion. I'm not sure how many we'll get to. And I don't remember which one, which number and order is this one. But one of the questions has to do with expectations and marriage. And um, a great question and uh, very, very uh, practical. Uh, anyone that's married or anyone that wants to get married, uh, anyone that wants to get married needs, needs to know about expectations. Anyone that is married already knows about expectations. And, um, but you know what? It's not just, and we're not talking about expectations in marriage today, but we are talking about expectations for life. What are your expectations for your future? What are your expectations about the things that are unknown, that are ahead for you? Because that's what Paul is talking about. And the thing that really gripped me is this idea that Paul said that, that Christ may be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And what really did not impress me until I really studied this, the context of it is, he was facing life or death. And he was in prison. He was anticipating a, a, being standing before a Roman tribunal. And he knew that this could be the end for him. In fact, in the next weeks ahead, um, he talks about the desire. You know, he has a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better but he felt that the need to stay for him to not die, for him to not get the death penalty, was even more important for the people that he was ministering to. And uh, he talks about that. But So that's what he's talking about here in verse 19 and 20. But notice, again, we mentioned this three weeks ago, that the text we look at today uh, starts, really, with the last three words of verse 18. Let me read again verse 18. What then, notwithstanding, he's talking about the fact that some people preach the gospel with honorable motives because they care about people. They want people to come to know the Lord. But then there was another group of rascals that was preaching the gospel, same message, but they were doing it for the wrong motives. 
They were taking, they were seizing the opportunity that Paul was now imprisoned. And uh, most commentators, most theologians that have studied this believe that, you know, this was like they looked at this as this is our top opportunity. Now we can one-up Paul and we can come out and, and gain disciples for ourselves and we can make Paul look bad. And so they preached the message that Paul preached with horrible motives because of envy and strife. And what makes it amazing is, now Paul had enemies. And many of those who opposed Paul preached a false gospel. In fact, he would tell the Corinthians, I believe it is, he says, Though I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, let him be incursed. It might have been Galatians, but he warns that, you know, there's only one gospel. And so these people that preached a false gospel or preached another Jesus were enemies of the cross. But then there were people that actually preached the same message, the, tr the gospel, but they did it with the wrong motives. Now, if Paul was in it simply for personal gain, like he was looking to you know, win friends and influence people, to make a lot of money, or to become popular and famous, and his, his motives were not genuinely caring for the people he ministered to, these people that he talks about, he would have nothing good to say about them because they were the ones that were going against him. But Paul doesn't flat outright say, these guys stay away from them. He's saying, you know what? I rejoice because the gospel is getting preached. The people that have the good motives, people that have the bad motives, at least the gospel is getting preached. Man, if that doesn't, if that doesn't speak... To Paul's motivation, I don't know what does. I mean, these people are not helping him, not wanting to make things easy for him. In fact, they may even be preaching the gospel in a way that would provoke the Roman authorities to give him the death penalty. And Paul would be saying, pray that these men will be quiet, that these false teachers, that these people that are doing it for strife will be silenced. But he doesn't. He says, I am so glad that they're preaching the gospel. Because that's what mattered to Paul. Because it's not Paul that saves souls. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves souls. And, and so he says, again, in, in, um, in, what verse did I say? It was 18? Yeah, verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. And now the next three words lead us into verses 19 and 20. And I, or and will rejoice. So he's rejoicing in what's happening up to now. Wow, the gospel's going out. You know, people that are that that are on, you know, that are for me are finding inspiration and boldness when they see that I'm in prison for the gospel, and they're going out and preaching bolder than ever before. And then there's those people that are preaching because they, they want to make my life more miserable. But hey, everyone, they're preaching the gospel. Praise the Lord. I will rejoice, or I do rejoice, and then I will rejoice. Now, this is where he's looking forward to what is ahead for him. And he's about ready to talk about his life or death and his, his expectation and his hope. In other words, he doesn't know the outcome. And, and neither do we, do we? We don't know what's ahead for us. 
we don't know when God is going to call us home. None of us know that. Our future is unknown. And Paul's was, was hanging in the balance because he knew that with one unction from the Roman tribunal, he'd be killed. And that was a very a likely possibility. But look what he says. Four. So verse 19 begins with the word four. So he's connected with verse 18. I will rejoice. Why will you rejoice, Paul? For or because I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Now, by the way, Paul isn't saying, I've been wanting to get saved for so long and I can't wait to get saved. And if with all these problems that are happening, now it's going to turn to my salvation. No, Paul was already saved. You look at 1 Corinthians 15, first five verses or so, where he, he says, I'm preaching the gospel, wherein you, know, you are saved and by which I was saved. So Paul was already saved as far as escaping the punishment that were due because of his sins. And I mentioned this three weeks ago. Salvation in the Bible isn't always simply talking. It's, it, the word is deliverance. And the only deliverance isn't deliverance from punishment from our sins. There's also, and it's used, the word salvation is talking about being delivered, sometimes being delivered from God's judgment, from hell, yes. Sometimes being delivered just talks about maybe our earthly life being spared. And that's what I believe Paul clearly is talking about here from the context. So he's not saying, you know, and by the way, he's not saying, and he's going to say this later where we'll look at this, the idea of work out your own salvation, a great verse that has been twisted by those who love to preach a works salvation. But he's, and he's not saying that, okay, it's all up to us now. If you work really hard, you're going to be saved. It's not what he's saying. Look what he says, verse 19. For I know that this, these events, shall turn to my salvation. When, it's, when you see that word salvation in this context, I want you to think of deliverance or vindication. Because that's what he's talking about. That's what his earnest expectation and his hope is. And, and by the way, his hope is not just, I don't want to die. I, I want to live longer. No. He says, whether it's life or death, I, I'm prepared to die. He just wants Christ to be magnified. So in other words, when he goes on trial and his words are brought to the forefront and his message is brought for the forefront, he wants the gospel to be articulated and he wants to properly represent the gospel so that in nothing he would be ashamed. That's the idea. And look what he says again, verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. And then we'll back up there in a minute, but look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. So think of when you think, because what he's talking about, now that we know what's ahead for Paul, he's looking to be vindicated. Again, whether they say he, he, he needs to die or not, he'll talk about that in a little bit. He was ready to die. In fact, he said to depart and be with Christ is far better, but he felt like God 
he was so confident that he was going to be exonerated one way or another. And, and there even seems to be the indication that he believed God wanted him to stick around for a little longer for their benefit. And so we see, in fact, let me remind you something that I said three weeks ago, because when you study this text, Paul's actually seems to be very clearly quoting or referring to certain Old Testament scriptures. You might, um, I used the word three weeks ago, intertextuality. Uh, and and someone, another writer pers- uh, explained it this way. Paul not only quotes the Old Testament, but also at times borrows or echoes the language in settings of specific Old Testament passages and refits, refits them into his own setting. Let me read that again. I want to explain what, what we believe Paul's doing here. Paul not only quotes from the Old Testament, but also at times borrows or echoes the language in settings of specific Old Testament passages, and he refits them to his own setting. Now here's, here's what I want to articulate. Paul would write in Romans, the things that were written aforetime in the Old Testament were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So when you and I, by the way, I hope you realize that it's not just the New Testament that is for you. It is the Old Testament too. Now, we have to keep in context the context. Much of the Old Testament, sometimes there was instructions given specifically to the the people of Israel, to the Levites. And so they're not commands for you. You you don't need to live like you are an Old Testament Levitical priest and and follow some of those things because they were context. But folks, the whole Old Testament, once you understand the context, there are principles that you can apply today. And that's the idea. And so what Paul would do, and what he seems to be doing here, he quotes from the book of Job, and he quotes from the Psalms, and he's not, he's not twisting them or taking them out of context. And each of them, the one we looked at three weeks ago in Job, and by the way, I gave the wrong reference at least a couple times, because I had one verse in my mind and I was saying another verse. But that's not the first time I've ever done that, so... You, you're just you're merciful. You you forgive me, right? You you cleanse me. Um, you understand that I am I'm not perfect. Uh, but Paul understood when he was quoting from Job. He wasn't saying that this verse meant him. He just you know you imagine he studied that verse and he heard Job's words and in Job's context, go back three weeks ago. Job was being ridiculed by his friends and claiming that Job you you. You've done something wrong. Come on, fess up. And Job just wanted to be vindicated. He wanted to have an audience with God, and he wanted to be proven. You know, he wanted to be delivered. He wanted to be vindicated. He wanted to be avenged. Now, that was talking to Job, and it was about Job. But Paul seems to be picking up that phraseology because he was thinking of that, and now repurposing it or refitting it. He wasn't twisting the scriptures. He wasn't say he wasn't saying that verse in Job is is talking about me. It's prophetical about me. No, he wasn't saying that. But he was saying that principle and what Job was clinging to for God to deliver, that's what I'm claiming for here. I'm praying that God will do the same thing. And now the verse we look at today, 
he was quoting from the Psalms. And so let's pick up with the, 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 my points last time were, what did Paul expect? Verse 19a, that's what we looked at last time. And then why did Paul expect it? We're going to jump up and start right here. And then what Paul's expectations produced. So second point, why did Paul expect it? Look at verse 19. He says, for I know that this shall turn out, is the idea, this shall turn to my salvation, this shall turn out for my vindication. Now notice it's through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So why, why did Paul have this earnest expectation and hope that he would be vindicated? Because of the prayers of God's people and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I want to read to you a few quotes, some things that I read that just really summarize this beautifully. Um, some, one writer said, The phrase, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is the key to Christ being glorified in every way. One learns a great deal about Paul's own spiritual life and understanding the role of the Spirit in that life. Listen to this. They said, Paul does not simply, he simply does not think of Christian life as lived in isolation from others. He may be the one in prison. He may be the one headed for trial. But the Philippians and others are inextricably bound together with him through the Spirit. In other words, Paul wasn't just saying, I'm only trusting God. And I'm, you know, and he was trusting God. But notice again what he said. I know this shall turn to my salvation, my deliverance, my vindication through your prayer. What an amazing thing. Paul saw himself as inextricably bound by the believers. And he knew. He knew he wouldn't be able to do it without the supply of the Holy Spirit. And he knew that God supplying Paul's spirit, because what did he want? He wanted boldness. He wanted boldness that when he stood before that Roman tribunal, he would be confident to, to, first of all, stand behind what he preached and what got him into prison, and then to preach the gospel there. That he would represent the gospel honorably, and that he would not be ashamed. And he knew that he couldn't do that on his own. He knew that he needed the help of the Holy Spirit. He knew that if God's Spirit did not empower him, he was on his own. But he was confident that the way the supply of the Spirit would be made available to him wasn't just him yielding to the Spirit. And by the way, there is that point. You and I, we need the Spirit of God. You realize that? Just because you're born again doesn't mean that the Spirit of God has full control of you. It is possible to resist the Holy Spirit. It is possible to quench the Holy Spirit. It is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. And by that, thus suppress God's work. One of Charlie's messages I saw when I was away was freeing the Spirit, I think. I can't wait to listen to that one. But that's the idea of what, what Paul's talking about. He knew if I, I know Christ is in me, but you know what? If, I, if I'm not yielded to the Spirit of God and under His control, I'm doomed. But it wasn't just between Paul and the Holy Spirit or Paul and God. 
How did Paul believe he was going to get that supply of the Spirit? Through their prayers. Inextricably bound. You know, there's some Christians that go through their life totally on their own. Just me and Jesus. You know, maybe they'll run across a few believers here and there. But they're basically on their own. Maybe they'll do some online stuff or whatever, have someone pray for them. But but they're not part of a fellowship of believers where they're having praying for one another. And, and like Paul, he, he looked at those Philippians and he said, I am confident that I'm, that I'm going to be vindicated in this because of the supply of the Spirit, because of your prayers. You have people praying for you. Do you if you're part of this body and you've... you've communicated your needs and you've asked for prayer we have, by the way we have a prayer meeting every wednesday it's online you can join us but even even on sunday we pray for one another make your you need to let your prayer requests be known but folks paul understood the need for support and prayers and encouragement of other christians i love i don't love it actually quite unpleasant but I benefit from studying church history and the persecution of the church there's some several um, news sources that gives us updated information about believers right now across this world that are suffering for their Christian faith and I pray for them it's so important to learn about that. I love reading history. And, um, you know, it's amazing when you think of our brothers and sisters in Christ that have stood for the gospel boldly. I want to share two quick examples. One was during China's Boxer Rebellion of 1900. Uh, the source I looked at says, Insurgents captured a mission station, blocked all the gates but one, and in front of that one gate placed a cross flat on the ground. Then the word was passed to those inside that any who, who crossed that threshold and trampled upon the cross were able to go away free. and They'd be given their freedom. But anybody that didn't go that way and trample the cross would be executed. And as the story is told, the first seven students, and by the way, there were... Um, there were like I think 99 students. The first seven students were gripped with fear and they left and they clearly trampled upon the cross because of what it represented. They, they just wanted to live. But then one girl refused to, even though it was just symbolic, uh, to her the cross represented so much more because it represented Jesus Christ dying. She would not stamp, stamp on it and, and jump on it. She looked at it, kneeled down in prayer, and went right out to the firing squad and died. Strengthened by her example, the remaining 92 students boldly followed her to the firing squad. You see, people are inspired by other people. You think about it. Paul's imprisonment inspired other Christians to share their faith boldly. I love hearing about people that witness and share the gospel. 
that do it humbly and, and that God uses. I'm inspired by that. When I read this story, I, I thought of another scenario that I read about in the life of Gladys Alleyward, Aylward, I forget how you pronounce her name. She was a missionary. Uh, fast forward now to after World War II. She was a missionary to China um, and a great servant of Jesus Christ. And I remember this story. I looked it up and found it again. That it says, after World War II, another civil war broke out in China. And it was the communist regime, regime where Mao Zedong became the new communist leader. During that time, Gladys Alward went through some hard times. There were a lot of people becoming Christian. And there was a university where 200 students had recently become Christians. And she knew many of them. One day, the communist leaders brought all the students out and read out the names of the students who had said that they were not for the communist government. And that was 200 students. One by one, they read their names. The first girl came forward and they said, Now are you for communism? What do you believe in now? She said, Two months ago I believed in Jesus Christ. But after you have been treated us so harshly, I believe in Jesus more than ever. And they took her out and beheaded her. And then Gladys Alward watched every 199 of those students responded the same way, emboldened by that first girl. And Gladys Alward said she, you know, she, it was horrible. And she knew that, that they, they could turn to her next. But she felt like she had to stay there and pray for each student that they would not deny the Lord, that they would be bold. And then, that she would also be just as bold. You know, what would happen if you had to renounce your faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe just some little token like stepping on a, you know, stepping on a cross. Could you, maybe you'd want to justify that. Like, well, that's not really the, you know, that's not representative of Jesus. That's just a cross. Or would we boldly be willing to identify with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it meant our own death? Because Paul was ready for that. Whether it be by life or by death. That's all he wanted was for God to be glorified in his body, whatever that meant. And so what did Paul's expectations produce? By the way, let me back up. I started to say this, but I talked about expectations. And I mentioned this two weeks ago. Because Paul is talking about his expectations and his hope that in nothing he'll be ashamed. Paul had, and by the way, when Paul said his expectations and his hope, it wasn't a hope so hope. It was the confident, like he was expecting. The word expectations is, is interesting. It actually is a Latin word that was carried over into the English language. And the Latin word simply meant waiting or an awaiting. And, and of course, that's what expectations is, isn't it? It's, it's we're waiting for something. We're expecting something to happen. And uh, in Psalm 62, David said, In the Lord is my hope, my expectation is in Him. And, um, and, and we need that to be the case. By the way, I said next Sunday come back because we're going to talk about expectations in marriage. And don't, if you've been married or you want to be married, you know you had expectations. You know. And some people are like, yeah, I know I had them. You know, <laughs> Um, expectations are huge and we all have them 
When I came to pastor this church, I had expectations. And some people had expectations. Probably everybody had expectations about this new young pastor guy that was going to start, you know, lead this church in, in Upper Darby. We all have expectations. And I love this. I said this already, but somebody once said, expectations are hidden demands that we place on God and others. Now, is it wrong for us to have expectations? Well, like, like David said, we need to, our expectations need to be in God. And, and so there are going to be times when we're going we're to be waiting for things to happen. We're going to expect people to act a certain way. And sometimes, and then the second quote that I shared is, today's expectations are tomorrow's resentments. And that's where we have to be careful. You know, we have expectations and if we don't give our expectations, that, that's where they really can, they can be hidden demands. You know, we don't realize we're making demands on God or others, but that's where we do need to give our expectations to God. Expectations aren't bad, though. Paul, he wasn't, this is, he's not using this in a neg- negative way. He's not saying, I, I don't have any expectations, I just give all my expectations to God. No, he said, I have an earnest expectation and a hope that in nothing I'll be ashamed, but that Christ will be magnified in my body. Whether I die or live, no matter what happens with this jury, this tribunal here, I'm, I'm counting on the fact that God is going to be glorified. And so we need to have uh, those kind of expectations. So Paul says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. Now, real quickly, Paul, uh, most people that study and know the Hebrew Old Testament or the, and the Greek translation of that, which was what um, Paul would have been quoting from, uh, he's using the exact wording of the Greek translation from Psalm 34 and Psalm 35, uh, talking about the poor person. So in this text, Paul is thinking of Job and his false accusation and and, and wanting to be vindicated and avenged. And he's also thinking of David in those two Psalms because the wording is verbatim, word for word. He's not claiming to be David. He's not be claiming to be going through the same thing. But it has this idea of, a, I don't want this, but I want this, in, in quoting the, the idea, or quoting the Psalms. Uh, David would also often talk about not being ashamed, but magnifying the Lord. In those Psalms particularly, he's, uh, David is talking about, I don't want to be ashamed, but on contrast, I want to magnify the Lord. And that seems to be exactly what, that's what was on Paul's mind. And he was, he was articulating that. He was refitting it for his own use. And you know what? You, you and I can do that. We should also have a desire not to be ashamed, but to magnify our God. There is a, uh, I love archaeology. Uh, it's amazing. Um, they're, they're constantly digging up dirt. That's all archaeology is, just digging up dirt. I used to love playing in the dirt, my little Tonka trucks and all. Maybe that's why I love archaeology. I'm not an archaeologist, though. I've never done gone to an archaeological dig. But the things that are continually being unearthed, uh, it's just, it seems like, it seems like every few years something comes out that disproves the skeptics 
that thought they had one up on the Bible because the Bible never mentioned a particular city or a particular person. And, and it's like nothing archaeologically, nothing historically ever mentioned some of these things. And then they'll dig up some ancient Hebrew city and there'll be this, you know, an obelisk or something that'll have an inscription of a king that is only mentioned in the Bible. It's like, ah, what are you going to do about that? You know, of course, the skeptics have to scramble. But something was uncovered. And again, this was not something that would, you know, affirm or deny any particular person in the Bible, but it's an amazing story. Because they believe that this event, what led to some graffiti on some walls in an old Roman structure that was, they believe was used to train pages. Back, you know, Roman, they had the pages. Not, not this kind of page, but a little a young person that would be a page and a, and a help servant. And they believe that this, this particular graffiti that they uncovered happened about 200 A.D. And it was just a scribbling with, first of all, it was a picture um, scratched into a wall. And it was a picture of a boy standing and raising his hand in worship to a man on a cross. But the man on the cross had a donkey head. And underneath this inscription was scrawled in the writing of, of a young person's words, uh, and, and this is the English translation of it. Ale it was in Greek. Alexamenos worships his God. And, and most, even unsaved archaeologists have looked, looked at that and understood the time and all. They thought, wow. This is probably, this was, you know, this is, they were mocking Jesus Christ. That was common. They knew that this picture of a donkey's head on someone on the cross is slamming Christianity. And it's clearly that the, the, this little page, there was a page named Alexamenos, or Alex, yeah, Alexamenos, that he was being mocked for worshiping Jesus Christ. And then, in a room around the corner, was another graffiti on the wall. And it was written in a different handwriting, I guess, or scratching. And it simply said this. It said, Alexamenos is faithful. And they, they've read that, they've studied that. And, and uh, I wish, oh, I'd love this. I wish we could go back. I wish we could be a bird or a, a fly on the wall and see Go back to 200 A.D. or 201 or whatever it happened. And I wish we could just watch what was happening. Because you can, you can see it. There's some kids and they're mocking their, their, their fellow you know, page students. They're making fun of him because he's a Christian. And, and Alexamenos worships his God. And then you see Alexamenos over in that room receiving the ridicule but not flinching, and writes, Alexamenos is faithful. I love that. What do you look like? How many kids were there? You know, who was the teacher that was not watching them when they were doing this? You know what I want to do? I want to meet Alexamenos someday. You know, maybe during my, on my 3,421st year in eternity, I'm going to be making a right off of Gold Road, and I'm going to meet this young guy 
who's now glorified. And, and, and I find out that he lived in 200 A.D. And he says, yeah. I said, what'd you do for a living? He said, oh, I was a page in the Roman, you know, Roman system. And what's your name? Well, my name was Alexamenos. No, not the Alexamenos that got ridiculed. He said, how'd you know about that? Oh, you didn't hear. Like, like way, way after you died. It was uncovered. The, the, you know, archaeology, they dug this up and they found what the kids were doing to you that day and they mocked you. And I'll say, oh, I'll never forget that day. There were th- three, three of my friends, supposedly. I, I, I don't know what it's going to say, but that was a guy long ago that was living for Jesus Christ and being mocked for it. Paul said, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know what? Paul was anticipating going to trial for preaching the gospel. And he wasn't apologetic. He, had, he was not saying, I'm ashamed at all. He just wanted to represent God properly and make, and make the gospel look good. In fact, I close with this. Let me hope I can find it. Peter, I know, 1 Peter 4. Turn there and we'll close with this. I wrote it down and then I didn't bring my notes to the pulpits. But I remembered where it was. That's the amazing thing. Miracle upon miracles. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 14. 1 Peter 4.14 If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That's Paul's testimony too. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. What's he mean by that? If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That's what, that's what Paul's perspective was. He knows that there's people that think he should be punished, even killed, for his identification with Jesus Christ. He wasn't ashamed. He wasn't flinching. But no matter what happened, no matter what happened when he stood before that tribunal and he was judged, whatever happened, he wanted Christ to be magnified whether it was through life or death. Isn't that a great verse? Isn't that a great verse? What's what's your expectation in life? That's my goal. I hope if, if you end up attending my funeral, by the way, if I die before you, will you come to my funeral? I'd like to have a few people there, you know. Um, but maybe you'd remember that Philippians 1.20 was my verse. And it's just, it's, I have not arrived yet. And I know that I will never have arrived. But I, I just want God to be glorified. And, uh, and I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. And I hope that's your desire as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you, Father, that what he taught he lived what he preached, he experienced, and he would end up fighting the good fight and giving his life for the gospel and not being ashamed and have nothing to be ashamed of. And while others reproach the name of Christ for Paul on our part and on your part, he was glorified. Our Savior was glorified. Father, may that be true for us. Help us to live in a way 
that would not bring shame to the gospel so that whether we live or die or whatever happens in the future, our Savior is glorified and magnified. And we ask you your help in applying and living these things. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.